thewealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. As you know, this is the podcast which just simply gives me an excuse to talk to folks who are pushing the business of financial advice into new and interesting areas. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jason Wink, the founder of Altruist. Jason, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure and, and great to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. We had a good conversation uh, at a recent conference, and, and I'm happy to continue it. Jason, as most of the listeners here will know, is the founder of the newest custodian on the block, Altruist. Uh, many people have heard of it. About a year ago, got the Series B round of funding, $50 million. Uh, looks like it's here to stay, a success story. Also the founder of Formula Folios before that, uh, sold to Brookstone Capital, I think, in 2020. And we'll get a little bit into his history. But first, Jason, before we do this, bring me back to the idea, the germ of the idea for Altruist. Where was it born? Why was it born? What need did you see? What was going on in the industry where you said, we need something like this? Sure. So I started my first RIA in 2004. And at that time, yeah, I had basically no, I was, uh, you know, I had no clients. <laughs> I was a brand new startup firm. And back then the RIA space was very small. I mean, I don't know what the total he- uh, count was of firms, but I would you know, guess it was maybe a few thousand. And, and even the majority of the firms were probably asset managers. They weren't really like wealth managers or financial planners, like so many of them are today. And the journey started with um, finding a custodian. So I called uh, a couple of the really big firms at the time. Um, I couldn't even get them to give me a call back. You know, I didn't have enough assets. Um, and there was one firm that was willing to, to sort of take on smaller firms that, that also had some um, brand recognition, at least to me. And, and that was at the time, TD Waterhouse later, later became known as TD Ameritrade. Mm-hmm. And so super grateful, you know, that they were, they were around and they were willing to take startups that didn't have any clients or assets. And in, in that kind of process, uh, I remember one of the strangest things was talking to the sales rep and, and in my mind, I thought, okay, once you have a custodian, you're, you're pretty much good to go. You know, maybe you need a CRM and some planning software, but you know, like the custodian should be able to do all the other stuff, you know, like it should be pretty easy to manage the accounts. Once I open them there, it should be pretty easy to do you know, to build my fees. They probably even do it for me was my assumption, right? But what I learned when I got going was that actually not much uh, could be done directly at the custodian. You know, you had to have, if you wanted a, you know, an elegant place for your clients to see consolidated access of their accounts and performance reports, you had to have a portfolio management system uh, that offered a client portal. And if you wanted to do fee billing, like you'd have to kind of create your fee billing schedule and have them, you know, sort of imported into the custodian to debit the accounts. At the time, they didn't have iRebail. So if you wanted to do trading, um, again, either had to have an external trading solution or you were managing these accounts onesie twosie. And I remember I kind of half joked at the time you know, to the sales rep and I was like, guys, seems like all this should just be built in. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Um, and their response was, well, you know, nobody, nobody wants that. You know, they want to be able to build the best of breed tech stack, you know, where you can pick all your favorite vendors for those things. 
you know, versus us trying to do it for you. And that was just sort of like the answer that I accepted as truth. I still always thought in my back of my mind, I was like, gosh, you know, it seems like there's a really big opportunity for someone just to make this more turnkey. Um, and interestingly, you know, part of that's what led me to start my, my, uh, my second company, which was, you mentioned formula folios, which was a turnkey asset management platform, because I felt like it was so hard actually to work with the custodians that a lot of advisors would rather just use a turnkey platform where someone else essentially assembled the technology, built our, you know, we had a pretty good set of engineering teams. We built our own proprietary advisor portal, a bunch of tools to automate portfolio management, um, and, and it was pretty successful, you know, that the, 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 the um, you know, TAMP took off and raised a lot of assets really quickly. And, but what I learned was that at scale, once you start trying to manage 50,000 accounts with multiple custodians, um, the TAMP doesn't really make anything better. Um, you know, it's just sort of like a Band-Aid, you know, that this sort of like middleware between an advisor and the custodian. And, and, and oftentimes, no matter how much technology you built, like you were still at the mercy of your core infrastructure, which was a custodian. In other words, if you wanted to have truly digital account opening, if they didn't support it, you couldn't do it, right? Didn't matter how innovative you wanted to be, that wasn't going to happen. Um, same with things like money movement and ACATs and trading, like you were always at the mercy of that core infrastructure. So I like to say that the original idea was planted in like 2004. Many, many years ago, um, I finally got fed up with it because once you start building large multi-billion dollar firms that are adding billions of dollars a year and opening tens of thousands of accounts a year, those same problems that you experience as a small uh, firm, they're just 10,000 times bigger, right? They, they don't necessarily get much better in your economics. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a point where you have very diminishing returns in terms of your scale resulting in better economics. Um, and I felt like uh, we were long, long overdue. Uh, in our industry to have an actual modern, fully vertically integrated custodian. Well, what you were uh, envisioning, this is the pre-Veo uh, days, right, of TD Ameritrade with, you know, all the widgets of all the different uh, vendors that you could uh, kind of plug into a tech stack and, and build yourself. And then and then advisors, as I understand it, would just then spend the rest of the time complaining about the integration <laughs> failures, right? Correct. Yeah. I would say like the... Um, um, you know, things got a little bit better, you know, over time. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, you never, uh, integrations are different than vertical integration, right? So for, for advisors who don't understand the difference, um, yeah, managing a bunch of external integrations from companies that use different backend technologies, they have different, um, uh, test environments versus production environments, meaning like, you know, when you try to like get the connection to work in a demo environment might work great. In reality, then in production, it doesn't work great. You know, you have six different vendors and three of them integrate and three of them don't, right? Like all of a sudden, what's the point of the integrations? Vertical integrations where everything just works out of the box. There's no need for external integrations because it's actually natively built into the application. So, yeah, we went through that. Um, obviously, I had about 30 engineers that worked for me at Formula Folios. Um, we worked very closely with companies like TD. We built a really elegant solution um, like based on what tools were available, but, but it still left a lot to be desired, in my opinion. So that's partly why um, yeah, I felt compelled to go start a new custodian. Yeah, there's, and there's a, uh, some confusion about... Uh, altruist being a custodian or an introducing custodian. Uh, what's the relationship between altruist and, and Apex? 
So Apex is our clearing and custody vendor. Um, mm-hmm. And this is you know, not dissimilar to, for those who've been in business for a while, they might know of companies like Trade PMR. Mm-hmm. You know, Trade PMR uses, I think it's First Clearing, which is a Wells Fargo um, you know, subsidiary for their clearing and custody. But I don't think anybody ever re- refers to Trade PMR as an introducing custodian, right? I think there's um, you know, a bit of a difference. But this is really, um, it, it's, this is not like a bad thing. You know, it's one of these things where um, I think as an advisor, you want your clearing firm and your custodian to have scale. You know, you want them to be a, a larger, stable institution that process millions of transactions, um, have been around for a long time. Uh, so, so these are reasons why when you're a startup, it makes a lot more sense to partner with an established clearing firm. And if you're a fintech, you know, you basically have two options. Um, there's maybe a third, maybe option in that department, but um, it's basically going to either be um, Apex, Drive Wealth, or a, a new startup called Embed. Uh, although, again, many of these clearing partners they don't have the tools that advisors would need, right? So they might only only support like individual accounts and individual IRAs or something like that. And clearly, as an advisor, your your book of business is more complex. Um, Apex has a they've been around longer and they, and they have a bit more you know account types and security types and abilities to support the complexity of an advisor business. Yeah, so it's a it's. I mean, am I wrong to think of it as sort of, you know, altruist is kind of like the, the, the faucet and the, and the thing that you interact with apex is kind of like the pipes way down deep in the ground. Yeah. And, and I think we, we've built a lot of our own pipes too. Um, you know, so, so there's certain things like, for example, like we built our own order management system from scratch. So we you know we're not relying on someone else to uh, create our bundled orders and send those mm-hmm. to market. We're doing those directly. Um, okay. Our rebalancer, we built our rebalancer from scratch. Um, again, originally, we used to use Apex's rebalancer, um, which is, um, again, a helpful way to get started. But eventually, you start to build, again, a lot of your own pipes. So certain components um, you know, uh, are 100% proprietary, built from scratch by Altruist. And then a lot of the things that are very specific around clearing transactions and the holding, the custody of those transactions are, are the pipes provided by Apex. And I think a lot of the the commentary around Altruist when it launched was that you can't possibly scale this to the size you need it to be in order for it to be successful. That's not true. What's your argument against? I think there's um, uh, an unfortunate part of our industry where you know some of the loudest voices uh, don't actually know anything about custody, right? So they just they have really big opinions on things, but I don't think they actually understand things like startups. They've never done one themselves. They've never built one at scale. They've never raised. You know, hundred million dollars to build a company. They never built a three or four or five hundred person organization. So I, I don't really listen much. You know, I think mm-hmm. I, I knew. To me, it was there was never a doubt in my mind. There was never a doubt in any of our investors' minds. There was never a doubt in any of our early founding employees' minds, our boards' minds. Like, like there, this was never like a. I, we sure hope this works. It was like, well, this will not just work. This will become potentially one of the most transformative companies in the history of our industry, like akin to how Vanguard innovated funds. We think we'll have that same type of innovation on custody clearing um, and specifically RIA custody. It's the only business that we're in. And so, yeah, I was never surprised that, we're gonna, that this was going to work. I mean, I, I, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. Um, I always just find it more comical when people say, oh, well, yeah, that won't work. And it's like mm-hmm. being said by people who've actually never done anything in their mm-hmm. life at scale. <laughs> and, and worth it no, to note that Vanguard was a participant in the most recent series. Uh, yeah, they've actually been an investor since our Series A. 
So okay. they, they've been an investor for quite a, quite a long time. Um, uh, Bill McNabb, their former chairman and CEO, has also um, been an investor and, and has continued to, to re-up his investments with each subsequent raise. So I, I think, again, if you're wondering, people who would know, is this going to work? Um, do I want to be personally involved? Do I want to commit my own personal capital? Do I want to join the board and, and be active in helping grow this business? If they have high conviction, to me, that's a lot more meaningful than, you know, like some, you know, armchair, <laughs> whatever analyst mm-hmm. who's never been in the space um, in, a, in a meaningful way. So, yeah, we, we've got some really super supportive, awesome investors, and, and it's made it a lot of fun, but also a lot easier, you know, having uh, some of the resources and, and intelligence, you know, that comes from from great uh, people. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of the the loud voices, and we'll get off this in a minute and then do a deeper dive into your past, uh, but uh, the argument around how custodians should be paid, uh, whether or not they should be paid on the, the back end by their you know, money uh, management or order flow versus RAs paying a basis point fee to the custodian, uh, you think that the latter option is not viable? Correct. <laughs> if you'd like me to elaborate, I'm happy yeah, to. But please. Yeah, yeah. Why <laughs> yeah. not? I mean, why, why wouldn't it be? Why? I, I, I don't yeah. So, so explain why it wouldn't be viable in your well, let me let me change hearts and minds for people. So, uh, so a couple of things. I think one is um, if people want to pay basis points, you can already do that, right? There was a custodian who charged basis points. It was called Folio Institutional, and you know they never reached scale, and advisors didn't choose them, right? So, if you wanted that, you could. Um, there's also interactive brokers. You want that? Go for it, right? They'll, they'll not take order flow. Um, in fact, Fidelity doesn't take order flow, right? So, if 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 people want that, they're welcome to go there. Um, and it's not like it doesn't exist. Now, there's, it's not quite as transparent as the only revenue we'll ever make is the fully disclosed basis points. I mean, some of them will charge you the basis points and they'll also and charge you. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, um, but, but I think like, you know, there have been some science experiments on this and, and it, it doesn't work very well. But, but here's the reason why I, I'm a, a pretty fervent believer that, you know, um, you don't have to go to basis points. I mean, I think one, if you go that route, um, w- one, advisors will almost unilaterally have to raise their fees. Um, so now you're going to the consumers, you're going to your clients, and you're saying, hey, instead of paying me you know, 1% hypothetically, now you have to pay me 1.2%, you know, because for your custodian, it's going to be another two-tenths of percent, and the advisor's not going to be willing to just take a 20% haircut. They're going to pass that cost forward, right? So now all of a sudden, every single firm is offering wrap fees, um, a whole nother can of worms there regulatory-wise, which would be a bit of a bit of a mess, but you know, now that's what we're all doing. And and the, the prices are going to be exclusively based on uh, basis points. You've removed very you know, much, um, I think, the ability to serve, I think, clients of all sort of sizes um, you know, when you go down that type of route, because the custodians are not going to charge 20 basis points, by the way. <laughs> They're going to charge 50 or 60 basis points if you try to make them charge you basis points. Their businesses don't work at 20 basis points. Um, you know, Most of them are making over 20 basis points today on just their, 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 their sweep accounts, right? Their cash mm-hmm. accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, if interest rates go up another, whatever, you know, 75, 200 basis points this year, they'll probably make 30 or more basis points on cash. They're not going to pass through hundred percent of their cash and then turn around and, and, and raise your fee 20 basis points, right? Because, well, I've got, look, we're, you know, we're passing on more return to you. We're like, we're just going to, you know, be over here just making our fixed revenue. We're never going to improve our revenue per asset, you know, on our platform. 
So I think one is it's, it's 100% wishful thinking. It just It's not going to happen. If it did, the pricing would be so high, it would absolutely crush advisors um, because all of a sudden now they would have to raise their fees really substantially. Um, in some cases, advisors would have to double their fees you know, if they're already, already charging a pretty low rate. So I think functionally, it's just not like realistic. Um, I also think that it creates a really difficult you know, sort of barrier for entry to innovation. Um, like what impetus does a custodian have to innovate um, if the only form of revenue and eventually things like operating margin um, are controlled by basis points? Um, you know, and, and, so, and, and what I mean by that is um, today, if you look at a business like Altruist, um, we, we operate on much thinner uh Margins. Our, our ROCA, our revenue on client assets, is much lower than a lot of other bigger custodians. But we can compete because we can innovate operationally, right? So our costs of doing business, sort of our operating expenses, um, we can codify solutions that make us way better, um, a way better fit. Um, we can also vertically integrate solutions, combine custody with software, with model marketplace, right? Like different things that otherwise would be segregated. Um, if the entire world operated the same, right? If every custodian was just 50 basis points, um, you know, I think it would be a really hard, it'd be really challenging for any of them to really ever think about innovating. You know, the, the only real way they could ever increase their profitability would be to lower their costs uh, because all of their top line revenue would be the exact same. And if we go into a world where the only differentiator from custodian to custodian, essentially in terms of their own business economics is their... Um, because their gross margins are essentially going to be the same. It's going to be their you know, net operating income. This is a bad world. Like nobody wants that world. Like I want innovation. I want like new, new players to come to space. I want companies to be you know, willing to take on new firms. Like if, again, if, if you're charging 50 basis points, we think the minimums are going to get smaller <laughs> you know, to go work with the big custodians. You have $100, $100 million. Why, why would they ever want you as a customer? Um, just to be patient and wait for you to get bigger? Like, there's lots of reasons why the current model works. And I think that the real solution is better transparency, but like the wholesale switch to like basis points or flat fees or something like that. Um, I, the great irony here, of course, is a lot of this comes from people who they think advisors should just charge flat fees or subscription mm -hmm. models, right? Which also doesn't scale. There's not a single company on the planet that's scaling that type of a business model. Um, and, and all those who try are, are having a really, really hard time competing against the incumbents that are monstrous, right. That are actually earning their revenue in the form of basis points. So I think it's kind of strange to say we want our custodians to pay basis points, but we want advisors to charge flat fees. You know, again, these things don't really reconcile in the real world. They might make for good, you know, uh, debate on social media or on conference stages, um, but they certainly don't help with innovation, launching new firms, uh, creating better access to advice for people who are underserved and don't have significant levels of wealth. All of those things are much better served if we create a sort of free market um, and we let the custodians choose how they want to earn their revenue and let advisors and their customers choose what's the best fit for them. That's a good point about bringing innovation into the marketplace for folks who maybe couldn't pay for it if it were just a pure fee environment, right? Uh, you know, one of the things that you guys did was you came in at a time when TD Ameritrade was absorbed into Schwab, uh, left a lot of the smaller advisors hanging, uh, not really having a place to go. And there you are with the, the tools that these advisors need to really launch and start an RIA from scratch without having to, to scrape and scrounge away at the, the, bigger, the bigger fish, right? 
Yeah, totally. I mean, again, if you look at my own uh, my own startup story going back to 2004 and how I couldn't get people to even take my call here at Altruist, someone can start. They can they can sign up in the morning, most likely be approved by the afternoon, and start opening accounts. If if they have zero clients right now, um, there's no cost. There's no contract. There's until they hit 100 accounts on our platform, they're not paying a dollar. Right. So we are able to create a very innovative. Uh, you know, sort of ecosystem or innovation centric ecosystem where anybody who wants to start a small business as a financial advisor um, operating as a fiduciary uh, that's properly licensed and registered can totally do that, right? The barrier for entry is much smaller. Um, consequently, uh, the access to uh, RIAs, you know, sort of the fiduciary channel of advice uh, can expand faster. Um, and then you combine that with like a bunch of integrated solutions for automation those advisors can actually serve more clients. Uh, they, you know, it's, it's very easy to serve 10 times as many clients because you don't have to worry about managing any external integrations, managing external cost structures. Uh, fractional shares allows you to like operate you know, clients with really any size portfolio, um, again, at scale. So we don't just want to make it easier for people to start and launch with really no barrier for entry. We want them to be able to serve 10 times or 20 times as many customers um, in this way, we can take the number of people that have access to a quality fiduciary financial advisor, and we can 10x, 20x it right across the nation. All of a sudden, you take something that's maybe exclusive for like the top 20 million you know, high net worth or higher net worth families in the country, and every single uh, person over age 16 years old could have an actual financial advisor. Um, they, that, that's, that's what innovation allows. And if we create a world where there's, you know, massive friction against innovation, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to see a world where only the richest people get access to the best advice. The wealth gap between the richest people and the poorest people will continue to expand. These are not things that uh, lead me to be super optimistic about the future. I want a future where you know there's more people who have access to great advice. Uh, they're able to create financial stability for their families, um, you know, escape sort of generational poverty and instead create generational wealth. Um, Innovation is very important for that. Um, I think we should all be thinking about all the possible ways we can build a financial you know, advisory future that has a huge amount of you know, support for innovation you know, versus getting friction, which is, you know, again, what a lot certain, certain things will lead to friction, which will not lead to, you know, again, the type of innovation that helps people. Right, right. So it's be a world where only the, the rich people get the shiny new objects and the, and the, the nice little innovative platform and, and the rest of us are stuck. Uh, take me back to 2004 when you started your RIA. What were you doing before that? You, you're from Michigan, yeah? You... Correct. Yeah. So born and raised in, in Michigan um, and uh, directly before my RIA, I mean, I was affiliated with an independent broker dealer for a couple of years. So that's how I learned, you know, sort of the, the wealth management space. Um, well, tell me, tell me, bring me back even a little bit further. How did you go from born and raised in your Grand Rapids? <laughs> is that where you're, where, where you're uh, kind of, Grand Rapids is like a, is a major city compared to where I'm from. I'm from a little okay. tiny town of a population of around four or 500 people um, in rural Western Michigan. And yeah, my, my journey to financial services was I was a, um, uh, you know, computer science student and fully intended on being an engineer. That was always my, 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 you know, back then, this is the late nineties, early two thousands. And in, in my head, I thought the future was, Hey, you get hired at a dot-com, move to Silicon Valley, um, IPO. And you know, and that's about as much as you think about when you're, you know, that age as fate would have it, you know, the dot-com bubble bursts and 
those engineering skills were actually better used uh, in finance. You know, so I ended up getting a job at Morgan Stanley at a pretty young age. I was 19 when I got hired, 20 when I started there, um, and uh, spent a couple of years learning finance. You know, really from uh, a productivity software perspective. But I ended up getting licensed and you know, kind of going through training and 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 really fell in love with this idea of um, helping people um, by combining. Uh, what I knew about building software uh, with financial services, you know, uh, financial advice specifically. So that's uh, how that's, I got there. That's what you were doing at Morgan Stanley, were, uh, uh, programming and systems, yes? Initially, but I actually went through their training program. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, eventually um, it, was, uh, it was a great learning experience. But yeah, I started off like if those who are like old school Morgan Stanley guys, they would, they, or gals, they might remember um, they used a DOS-based system for uh, keeping track of accounts. And you know, right around that time period, they were switching to a Microsoft Outlook. And in, in early days of Microsoft Outlook, there were these things called add-ons. And essentially, I wrote programs that would allow you to use Outlook to run scripts against this DOS prompt um, and look up things like, you know, who are your biggest accounts? What were their holdings? But it's hard for people to imagine, like, there was a world, it wasn't that long ago, 22 years ago, where there was no like web-based access to your clients, you know, like the, 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 the things we complain about sometimes as financial advisors today um, were like, yeah, like th- th- those would be like massive uh, improvements over the, the inefficiencies of the late nineties, early two thousands in uh, warehouses. Yeah. And so from Morgan Stanley, you uh, get your first taste of financial services. Where do you make the jump to the RIA track? Yeah, so I, I took a couple of years. Um, actually, started my uh, started uh, like a dot com of my own um, that was designed to uh, automate four hundred one k advice. Um, was the the first sort of venture into how do I can help people? The, the idea, by the way, came from when I was at Morgan. I noticed that the the bulk of their efforts were really to serve um, either you know I'd say like affluent to ultra affluent families. Mm-hmm. And you know where I'm from, there's not a whole lot of affluent families. Um, you know, I, my family certainly was was not, um, and I didn't really know anybody who was. And so I thought, well, what what if there was a way I could take some of the things I've learned and and make them accessible to a lot more people? And I thought about a 401k because I just in my mind I was like, well, what do my parents have? Like, well, they have a 401k, they work at a factory. And uh, so what if there was a way that anybody, even if you uh, were a blue collar worker and you, you know, you're just putting 2% of your paycheck into your 401k, that you could still have um, some form of advice, if you will, or insights to make better choices. But that was the first venture. Uh, it was really, really cool because I learned you know, how to do front-end web development and I uh, learned a little bit about sales and marketing and, and, and it was a great learning experience. But what, what I ultimately learned was that trying to get people to self-serve, like, you know, essentially it was, you know, choose your, where do you work? Okay. What's your risk tolerance? Okay. Here's the, here's what you should do with your 401k. Um, people didn't want to actually do it themselves is what I found. Um, at that time, they, they, they would, they would sign up, they would make some, some minimal initiative. And then six, nine months later, they would cancel their subscription and be like, well, you know, if you just would do this for me, I'd pay you twice as much money. You know, and that was a common exit interview, you know, sort of exit uh, survey anyway, response. And I thought, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe the solution is I help these people with their 401ks just directly and I just charge them a fee. And that's where like I started researching, how do you do that? You know, and, and, the, and it led me to the RIA channel where you could, again, sort of sell your advice for a fee. Um, and yeah, my first firm was actually focused on retirement because again, I had this whole 401k platform that I was building and and uh, most of the people I thought would be my age. I thought they'd be people in their 20s or even 30s. 
that were early and just needed a little bit of help. But what I found was the typical customer was a baby boomer who at that time, these were people in like their forties and fifties. Um, so when I decided to start my first RIA, I called it retirement wealth advisors and focused on, on uh, retirement planning. So yeah, that was the journey. It was quite, quite a, uh, quite a fun few years. And you're, so you're putting yourself between the, the, uh, the sponsor and the uh, employee uh, helping them or managing, I guess, their 401k portfolios. Yeah. So when I actually launched my firm, um, I, did, I went away from like managing the 401ks. I mean, of course, we would give advice on, on 401ks, but implementation was up to the the, the actual client mm-hmm. and just took clients normally. So did full, you know, learned comprehensive financial planning. Um, uh, if they had liquid assets or assets that they were, uh, you know, either roll over from old 401ks or they had other advisors that weren't meeting their needs. Uh, it was a, uh, yeah, I'd say a traditional financial planning led uh, process and then comprehensive um, ongoing uh, financial management uh, from that point forward. But again, with a retirement focus, a lot of, a lot of folks were fifties and, and above. Okay. And then you kind of uh, uh, start to get really into the markets, right? What was the idea for uh, formula folios? When did that come about and what was that? Yeah, it was a, it was a fun uh, transition. What, what happened was um, when I started Retirement Wealth, it was uh, it became uh, fairly successful, fairly fast, and I was also still very young, you know, because I was only twenty four when I started it, and by the time I was, I think, twenty seven is when I passed one hundred million dollars of, of AUM, and that was unusual. Okay, let me just take it back to that real quick. Were, were most of your clients in Michigan? Were you doing this one on one personal, you know, interacting with clients, or was there some yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, initially, they were local, and then I quickly started doing um, uh, virtual work. So I was like a real OG for uh, you know working with um, clients virtually. Uh, this is before Zoom and GoToMeeting even existed, you know, and things like that. And um, so I was using uh, essentially just you know largely email and then phone calls, and then eventually a little bit of Skype here and there. But that was the the process. But it all started because I started blogging actually in the in the like uh, you know two thousand like I'd say like you know kind of pre global financial crisis, and then throughout that time period, and and it really helped me attract clients all over the country. And I built a pretty significant base of clients. I uh, ended up um, hiring a couple of other advisors, and 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 we were so busy. With all of the inbound demand from uh, from my my blogging, which by the way I wasn't like writing that often. I wrote like ten blog posts or something, but they were they were pretty good, I guess. Um, and, and there was not, a whole science behind people, it, right? Yeah, not that many people were doing it, right? I mean, yeah, I think I was. To, to my knowledge, I was the first. I didn't know anyone before me. I mean, that was doing it to, to get clients. Um, uh, you know, right around that era, shortly after me is I think when like Reform Broker and Jeff Rose started his blog, blog Good Financial Sense. So there were some people that kind of came shortly thereafter. Um, I think uh, Barry's uh, Big mm-hmm. Picture and, and those kind of all came. But, um, but yeah, I mean, at the time I was I was very very early and and and. Uh, uh, and then, you know, used a pretty scientific, I mean, as anyone who's kind of an engineer is going to be pretty pragmatic. So I used to a pretty, it wasn't a, I wasn't doing it for fun, you know, and to just to create content. Like I was doing it with a lot of intention uh, and it worked. So, so interestingly, the, the, what ended up happening was, you know, the, the growth actually led to a speaking engagement at TD Ameritrade's conference where they thought they were starting to, you know, um, have like these little breakout sessions to talk about, you know, online marketing and social media and technology. And, and so I did a session and it's kind of funny, you know, that the session, um, uh, I don't know how many people were there, maybe a couple hundred or whatever it was, but it was a very, very packed room. And I showed people exactly verbatim how I did it, you know, how I was getting all the, you know, inbound demand. 
Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I remember like there was an article someone wrote about it. I remember which, which publication. And, and there was even somebody that was like, well, yeah, you know, whatever Jason's saying, it did. Yeah, clearly this doesn't work because, you know, if it did, he would never tell anybody about it. <laughs> I'm like, clearly these people don't know me very well. I'm a pretty open book. You know, I'll tell you exactly how I do what I do. But, um, um, but, but the, the, the really cool um, side effect was it was I started having a lot of financial advisors start to reach out to me. Hey, I'd love to know how, hey, could I get plugged in? Is there any way you would sell leads? And as people started looking more at what I was doing, um, I had a very pragmatic way of onboarding clients, right? I, I built my own uh, portal, like way before I had a TAMP. I had a, uh, my own web portal where we could create proposals and automatically do things like tax location and you know risk appropriate um, uh, portfolio proposals. And it just made it really, I tried to really scale onboarding new clients as best as I could at that time. And and so people were like, "Gosh, I'd love to use that too." Like, do you, you know, do, do you do you license your your software? It was never meant for anyone other than myself, so the answer was always no. But it got the wheels turning, and in, in a lot of ways, that's where Formula Folios came from. Is it was we essentially repurposed the stuff I was doing. So Formula Folios, you know, a lot of people, the name might imply like it was all about you know formula based money management. It was also about formula based client acquisition. A huge part of our value prop was we did a ton of digital marketing um, and we're really good at it. Um, and also like digital hybrid marketing. And the solution basically that I went to market with with Formula Folios was, hey, plug in here and we'll show you how to build a digital front end to get new clients. And then you plug into our digital back end to onboard and automate a lot of the back office services. Um, and we'll charge you a you know fixed basis point fee. It'll kind of our tier, I guess, fee. It'll go down as your assets go up and, and we'll grow together. Um, it, you know, the, the story resonated really well um, and advisors plugged in and started growing, but the, the, the whole business kind of came about really because um, of advisors and kind of creating inbound requests around how I built that private practice. And, uh, and, and, and it turned out to be what I was doing did scale, you know, and, and, and what went from something that was growing really nicely as a private practice, we turned that into one of the fastest growing RAs in the history of the industry. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and still growing very, very quickly to this day. Are you, are you still uh, sold to Brookstone Capital Management, correct? In 2020? Yeah. So, so it was, um, uh, it, it was a, partial sale and then partial merger. So we had some shareholders that, that fully sold and, and moved on. And, uh, and then uh, folks like myself and a couple of others um, sold some, but actually merged a lot of our equity into Brookstone. Uh, today, I still own a pretty meaningful, I think I'm the second largest individual shareholder of Brookstone, but, I, but they have a great management team uh, led by Dean Zayed and, and Daryl Ronconi a lot of my old colleagues. Um, so I don't have any involvement on a day-to-day basis. I haven't for years, um, but, um, but still very much um, uh, supportive of their business and, and very proud of, of, of what they've uh, continued to, to do with the company. And still that uh, itch was there to create something else. Very much, but, but also like I, I realized that, um, you know, the, I, I started to feel like uh the TAMP world might start running into some headwinds, um, you know, namely because what I learned is, you know, I, I, as, as a technologist uh, and someone who ran a pretty large technology organization, you know, our company was 106 employees. When I, when I resigned and about a third of the company were in uh, some type of product engineering or product design. So we, we you know, although we were um, offering a lot of traditional services, you know, like a TAMP would, but we were developing a lot of our own proprietary technology. And it wasn't because we just like were obsessed with building our own stuff. It was because we were constantly trying to solve for inefficiencies. 
And so, yeah, there was an itch to start a new company, but a lot of it was to, you know, like that new company itch oftentimes comes from, I need to solve a problem, right? And, mm-hmm. and the problem that we need to solve was, uh, again, imagine you're opening 50 accounts a day and the traditional custodian's account opening process resulted in, let's call it a 15% not in good order rate, right? So it means that on a, any given day, seven to eight accounts are going to have something wrong with them. The new account opening process between opening, funding, trading, and your first fee bill run might be a total of, let's say, 60 days, um, you know, calendar days, which is going to be 42 business days. Um, and so you're going to have at any given time around 300 to 350 accounts in some phase of not in good order, right? Where you're following up on a missed you know, uh, signature or somebody whose legal name is, you know, um, John, but they put Jack as their name on their application. It gets rejected. You've got to chase the client down and get, you know, um, combine that with trading and rebalancing. You know, we had, we were spending seven figures on external trading soft figure, uh, so, so, uh, seven years of external software trading. Um, we were, uh, shoot, we probably had uh, seven figures a year in paying people to manage cashiering, right? Once you have 50,000 or more accounts, those accounts have money coming in and out all the time. You have RMDs, you have charitable contributions, you have um, ACHs coming inbound, you have outbound wires, right? And you've constantly got to manage the cash in those accounts. And there was no automation for that, not from software. Again, we worked with the biggest, most expensive software companies in the industry. They still couldn't codify away those cash management issues. So we had to power it with a bunch of people. Um, inevitably, between all of the disconnected systems and having so many people working on some, such large volumes of transactions, you make mistakes, you know, human mistakes. Those mistakes at scale are very expensive, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars a year in errors, right? Trade errors, um, you know, uh, missed distributions, um, overdraft fees that a client gets hit with, you have to rebate. Like, so I can tell you that, again, as I said before, when you, when you build something and it gets successful, a lot of advisors, they don't understand, and it's okay, I didn't either when I was kind of in my earlier stages, but they, they accept inefficiency as just like a cost of doing business. Well, yeah, it's a pain in the ass to open new accounts, but I only open like 15 of them a year. So it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, you know, running fee billing is kind of a pain, but I only do it quarterly. And, you know, yeah, it sucks a couple of days out of our, the team's lives every quarter. But, you know, look, that's just cost of doing business. Um, at scale, all those things, again, they are a hundred or a thousand or 10,000 times worse. Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so I couldn't help but think to myself, we cannot sit around and wait for the custodians to solve these problems. They have zero motivation to solve these problems. And there was almost like this weird conspiracy-like thing happening in my view where I thought, you know, it's really strange to me that the really big firms uh, at the time, most of them were getting significant soft dollar payments from the custodians to pay the software vendors. So the software vendors didn't really want to rock the boat either because, you know, they might be getting millions or tens of millions in payments directly from the custodian via these soft dollar deals with their largest customers. So no one really wanted to go in and again, sort of shake up the apple cart, rock the boat because everybody was just getting fat and happy. Meanwhile, um, the people who were really suffering were actually the end clients who were getting maybe inferior advice because an advisor has a limit of how many people they can properly serve before they run into scale challenges, mm-hmm. um, or just people not even getting access to an advisor because the best advisors were no longer taking clients. You know, they didn't have capacity anymore, and they, and they understood the capacity constraint. They didn't want it to yield into you know, bad uh, service, so they just stopped taking um, The solution was you have to go to the infrastructure layer of the industry. 
And it's, and, and you also have to completely shake up the way that, um, that the, uh, incumbent software companies play with the incumbent custodians. Um, it's an unpopular thing to do, by the way. Um, I don't think we have a lot of friends in software land and I don't think we have a lot of friends in custodial development. Um, but we have a lot of friends in advisor land, right? Like the advisors really, I think, love and appreciate what we're doing. Um, and, uh, but, but that's kind of how, how it all came about, right? Like, yeah, was there an itch to start something new? Of course, but it was more an itch to solve a problem that I saw that was going to create a lot of issues for our industry if we didn't get better. Uh, because I think that the fintech companies, look, they, they'll have their ebbs and flows, but I think over the next 20 years, they're going to keep getting better. And I think a lot of the big companies are going to continue to double and triple and quadruple down on going direct to consumer. And we already see that, like the big custodians that a lot of advisors use, they're building out more and more resources to keep their uh, clients at their branch offices uh, longer, meaning like with larger and larger dollar amounts. It used to be, you know, if they had over a quarter million, they'd refer them out to an advisor or over half a million refer them out. Now, oftentimes, if they have a client with under $2 million, let's keep them themselves, right? They don't want to send the advisors to business. And yet here we are, the advisors, essentially feeding our competition by using their custody services um, and using the software companies that are essentially, you know, uh, uh, you know, buddied up with those custodians for lots of obvious reasons. And, and a lot of people don't want to talk about it. And, um, and so, yeah, that's what we're doing. It's, a, it's an itch, hopefully, that actually... Um, you know, results in millions of people having much, much better lives because they get access to great advisors and those advisors building really successful businesses in new and innovative ways they didn't think was possible before us. Well, that's that's fantastic. I, I had one more quick question. That's a good place to, to flag in it, I guess. But uh, you've built this software for advisors to grow into, right? Uh, an advisor who is maybe new or relatively new to the industry, coming, going to altruist and growing into what you've built. What about advisors who are coming with multi-custodial relationships uh, and looking for a new solution coming over to Altruist? Is that possible? Totally. Yeah, I think the um, and I think you know the size thing is an interesting part too. You know, the the one thing I always will tell advisors because sometimes they'll they'll select things to me like, well, you guys sure you're a good fit. You know, like I, I work with mostly pretty high net worth clients, and and I always will respond go, well, most people don't know this, but I still have eleven clients myself. Um, all of those people are what I'd call um, high net worth at minimum to some of them ultra or mega high net worth. Um, Altruist is totally capable of that. Like there's no, there's no challenges there. They can be multi-custodial. People can be uh, worth $100 million. There's zero issues, right? I know from experience, you know, so, um, so, so it's totally capable. But yeah, what we, what we really tried to do though was kind of start and say, what if somebody only had 10 clients and each one of those clients was just getting started in their own lives and they had $10,000, like, like, is this going to be easy and simple and turnkey enough that they can actually come out of the gates and have a profitable business from day one? And, and the answer is absolutely. Like we, and we and we have those users. We have hundreds of them joining, you know, almost every quarter. You know, these brand new firms starting from scratch. On the flip side, um, as firms grow, I mean, again, whether they have a hundred million, five hundred million, or billions, we have a really interesting you know, kind of eclectic group of, of users. Um, you know, the advisors that we work with today, we have firms that have over 20 billion in assets, um, over 10 billion in assets, over 1 billion in assets, like that still use the product, right? So um, it, it is very flexible in that respect. And one of the things that's very unique about our solution is that we wanted the software to be agnostic. So although it works, I'd say, um, you know, it works much better if the accounts are directly with Altruist via um, Apex Clearing, um, a lot of the features work fine if the advisor is multi-custodial because we realize so many people are going to come in and say, 
I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of my clients they are already at Charles Schwab and Schwab's been really good to them. I don't want to move those clients. No problem, right? You can still come to Altruist. Our software will overlay, pull in the data. You can do your fee billing, offer your clients really elegant all-in-one mobile experience. Um, you know, the integrations that we build, you'll be able to take that data. It's totally your data. We don't hold it hostage like a lot of software companies and you can pipe it wherever you want it to go. So we've really tried to be um, very friendly, whether you're an existing advisor with a successful business and you're just looking for, you know, maybe a second custodian plus software. We have plenty of users doing that. Um, we have some who make the 100% switch to us, regardless of their size. That's always great. And then we have a lot of people who are starting up new firms early stage. They probably don't want the complexity of multiple custodians, um, but they know that they have that possibility um, without having to leave our software platform, right? They don't have to make that choice. They can actually choose to grow in whichever way is most sensible for, for them and their clients. Okay. Well, this is fantastic, Jason. We're running out of time. Uh, I could keep going forever, but uh, I know uh, I only have you for a, a small period here. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Uh, I always learn a lot. Well, th thank you so much. Appreciate the, uh, the, the, the great question asking and sharing of the platform. Uh, very much appreciated the time. This has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.